welcome to Two Bye Guys. I am Rob, here solo today, and we've got a very interesting episode for you. Some of our guests this season have run the gamut from professional football players to gender-fluid fetish content creators, and today we have something different, a PhD candidate at King's College in London. He is researching bisexual transgression in film a topic close to my heart. Uh, please welcome Jacob Engelberg to Two Bye Guys. Hi, Jacob. Thank you so much, Rob, for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's nice to finally meet you. I forget exactly when I started following you on Twitter, but that is sort of how we got in touch. And I just remember really being drawn to the stuff you were tweeting and some of the articles you were writing. So I'm very interested to uh, get into this next level of bi-representation and what all this stuff means. So. Oh, no, I'm really happy to hear that. And I, I feel like I'm much less exciting than some of the other guests that you mentioned, but no. I'll try my hardest to be. <laughs> no, no, this is the important stuff because I think on by twitter which is like a big thing and by twitter is like a much bigger portion of twitter than bisexuality is in real life i think and you know I, something i've noticed being on by twitter for the last couple of years is we end up going in circles sometimes and talking about a lot of the same things and like it's on, on the one hand necessary because there's so many myths and misperceptions but on the other hand, it's like, I'm, I'm getting tired of dispelling myths and stereotypes. And I'm getting tired of the idea that we have to do that, which you've written about. So before we get into your research, why don't we start with what are your pronouns? How do you identify? Uh, and, and why do you use whatever labels or words you use? So my pronouns are he, him, and I identify as a bisexual, queer, Jewish, radical leftist guy. And cool. yeah, I suppose to focus on the on the bi one, I think I remember hearing the word as a kid and thinking that that was like, oh, there's finally a word for that thing that I've been feeling. Um, and even though I didn't come out until much later, it always stuck with me that there was something there that resonated with me. And as I got older, I got more interested in bisexual history and bisexual politics, which is quite difficult to come across unless you go searching for it sometimes. And then it felt like I was, yeah, part of this kind of um, legacy that I'm, I'm very proud to be part of. Interesting. I, I mean, I love relating the Jewishness and left, like radical leftism to this because yeah. I, I I also identify as both of those and I never quite made that connection to bisexuality until later in life. Mm. So we could talk about that in a bit. But when you say you had those some thoughts as a kid, but then you came out later, when actually was that? How old were you when you had those first thoughts and what led to whenever you did come out and when was that? I mean, I remember being like a very sexually curious kid from like a very early age, I like wanted to, I wanted to know what this like sex thing was and what like all the adults did and like all the jokes that they were having and whatnot. And yeah, I remember I would like set the VHS player in my family home to like record late at night just in case there was something like sexy on. And then I'd get up really early in the morning to like, 
watch it in private. This is like wow. the age of like five or six or something. And I could have really been scarred by that. But luckily I wasn't. Wow. But yeah, and I didn't actually come out till I was 19, which it felt like that was late at the time because yeah. I did have a an awareness of my sexuality um, all before then. But I think the important thing for me was to come out in an environment where I would feel safe and an environment where I'd feel believed as well, which I think is a quite an important thing for bisexual men is that you don't want a coming out experience where people say, ah, oh, he's, he's just gay and he's going to get there. Yeah. So I had to be kind of sure that I was in a social environment where I didn't think that was going to happen. And that wasn't really until the age of 19. It's funny how like pretty much everyone thinks they came out late no matter what it is. Because <laughs> like there's always that period where you kind of know something, but we're not ready. You know, I had that, but it was at age 30. Right. And that felt really late to me. And But then I've met people who came out in their 50s or 60s. And like, mm. there are so many myths and misperceptions that you kind of want to take the time to understand it yourself fully so that you can be confident and not get pulled in another direction when you come out almost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I was going to save this for later, but let's get into it now. Uh, <laughs> I also identify with what you're saying, being like curious sexually. Like I didn't think of myself that way at the time, but looking back, I did. And your your story reminds me that I once like found these videos in our basement. They were like erotic massage videos uh-huh. that, my, that my dad had like hid in the basement. And I was just randomly searching for something one time and found them uh-huh. and I, I i never told them that i found them i mean if they listen to this episode it'll be the first time that my parents know <laughs> that i that i saw those but i would like watch them late at night after everyone went to bed just to see like what it was and what my parents were like i i didn't look at them as sexual beings mm. they're like parents and i think there's something maybe you can help me sort this out that's related to bisexuality, related to not just liking people of multiple genders, but wanting to expose sexuality in a different way and to break through the sort of puritanical cultures we live in or monosexuality or monogamy. There's just like anti-normative and putting things out in the open. Does that make sense? And is it related to your lefty politics like it's a big question i don't know where i'm going absolutely no i think that bisexuality for like all of modern history has been something that has been forbidden and has never been really able to be assimilated into a norm in the ways that we can see perhaps some forms of homosexuality so i think it's always had this this kind of status that is this outsider status. And I think from there, you can begin to kind of think critically about sexuality as a whole. And be and I think that experience of being being curious about sex and sexuality, I do think that there's something quite bi about that. But in terms of, yeah, the links to kind of radical politics and and stuff, some of the interesting stuff that I came across recently is I was 
doing research into male bisexuality and European cinema, art cinema of the 20th century. And I came across some kind of political activist figures. Um, the first one is a guy called Mario Miele, who's an Italian activist. And the second one is a guy called Daniel Guerin, who's a French activist. And both of them advocated for something that we would now think of as bisexuality. Guerin called it that, Miele didn't. And they saw that there was they saw in bisexuality a kind of a promise of a radically different future and mm. i mean they're they're quite kind of extreme thinkers that um in in some senses because gayran would write about gay men as being misogynistic in the, in the way that they're put off by women mm -hmm. but i think that there's something there's something there in those slightly kind of utopian kind of political projects to think about yeah what does it mean for our desires to inform our politics and for our politics to inform our desires right. which i think are really interesting questions and i think sometimes we need to it's a reminder that we need to look away from Anglophone histories of sexuality um, to to see how how these things have been conceptualized elsewhere. Yeah, it's interesting. It does there is some does seem to be a connection for me of like with my bisexuality never really quite fitting into the way I saw the world. But then when I started understanding myself and coming out, realizing oh the world actually could be very different, mm -hmm. and we could make that world. It's similar to like democratic socialism or like you know radical progressivism of like not making little incremental changes within the way things are but actually imagining whole new systems mm. and the the resistance you get to that feels similar in a way it's almost this like well that's not that's impossible kind of reactions that i've had to both progressive politics and bisexuality no i love that i love that and i think that there's yeah there's a lot to be drawn from those analogies actually <laughs> about the importance of thinking the impossible yeah and to be imaginative in the way that we think about the world as well the utopian politics is a, a way of of moving the world towards something that is radically better and i think that I think our bisexuality can inform that by knowing the possibility of something that is not dominant right now can can happen. Yeah. Yeah. Reminds me a lot of Shiri Eisner's book, um, Notes on a Bisexual Revolution. If you have not read that one, get get oh, on it. Oh, I've not, not I'm, you, I'm sure you've read Oh, so <laughs> I mean I mean the, the listeners. Yep. <laughs> I know you've read it because I think you mentioned it. Yeah, in yeah. Some of your writing. So let's get into some of your work. Yeah. Uh, although before we get into the actual content of it, like, how did you get interested in doing this as PhD research as like, you know, your professional studies? So I studied film and literature during my undergrad. And I kind of encountered queer studies for the first time. And like, lots of other queer people it was a really inspiring moment for me discovering queer studies and having people put theories together that spoke to something that I had only ever felt or mm -hmm. or whatever there was a lot there that really nourished me but at the same time 
as a bisexual person doing that, I was looking there for a kind of account for the specificity of bisexuality that I didn't really find in, in queer studies. And it's still not discussed much in queer studies, if at all. We only really see it talked about in terms of psychoanalysis, in terms of um, innate bisexuality, and that is in a very kind of historically contingent way. Or we see it discussed as a kind of identity and its, and its status as an identity is kind of seen as unique to bisexuality as if homosexuality isn't also in a form of identity. But it wasn't until my MA, which was a degree that was called sexual dissidence, that I began to engage with those things that I was talking about, bisexual history, bisexual activism, and also um, learning about bisexual theory, which was a thing that came about in the aftermath of queer studies as a direct response to it, that really challenged the way that monosexuality got naturalised within queer studies. So none of these things have ever become dominant in these fields or become institutionalised in the same way as queer studies has and trans studies is beginning to as well. But I think that there's so much to, to take from these ideas. So during my MA, I wrote about the films of Gregor Rocky. My PhD came about a few years later. I worked outside of academia for a while. And then I came back because I was, I felt like I hadn't, I wasn't done exploring this stuff. And I think <laughs> I've always found bisexual kind of baddies, bisexual villains, incredibly compelling. And I wanted to engage with them in a way that was looking beyond the kind of discussions that I was seeing around me on social media and in certain publications of this character does a bad thing and they're bisexual and that that means that it's bad for bisexuals. I'd, yeah. I, I didn't quite buy that and so I wanted to look into that in a bit more detail. actually had never seen Basic Instinct until this week. I watched it in oh, preparation wow. for this. And I watched it with, you know, some of the stuff you've been writing in mind. And and I loved it because I just like enjoyed what it was. And I let go of that idea that you're talking about, that a bad person who is bisexual on screen is bad by representation. So, so let's get into that. I mean, sure. in real life, bisexual people to be good representatives of our identity we just kind of have to be and exist and be out if possible and be open and honest however when you're talking about film or tv bisexuality has this sort of need to be witnessed or proven within the film or show itself and that often just gets reduced to the character being with a man and a woman within the course of the film or TV. So how do you talk about representing bisexuality differently when it's in real life versus in fiction? Or what's wrong with that conception of bi-representation in film? How is that limiting? Yeah, so I think, I think sometimes people borrow that kind of real life idea of bi-representation. And I think 
I, th I think it's a really useful idea in terms of politics to think about queer organisations, LGBT organisations, and to what extent is bisexuality a concern for them? For To what extent are bisexuals represented in their organisation? And, and things like that, I think it's very useful. I think that the issue that we get when we kind of move that to film and TV is that sexuality is only kind of readable on film in very specific ways. And the dominant way of reading sexuality in film is kind of biased, let's say, towards monosexuality. And that if we see a single image, I like to give the example of two people kissing, dependent on their gender, the kind of dominant interpretive model is to say, two men, it's gay, man and a woman, it's straight, woman and woman, it's lesbian. Mm -hmm. And that is the kind of model of interpretation that we're having to contend with when we approach bisexuality in film. There are actually very few instances within that framework that bisexuality can ever be readable on film. And even in those kind of examples that you give where characters have relationships with people of different genders, it can still be interpreted in a monosexual way. There's a great scholar called um, Beth Carroll Roberts that says that those narratives can tend to be interpreted as either coming out or going straight narratives right. depending on the ordering of the partners. And so if we take an example like Brokeback Mountain, people were able to read that as the gay cowboy film because they kind of constructed the same gender relationship as one of freedom and um, authenticity and constructed the um, relationship those men had with their wives as one of inauthenticity. Now that's right. not something that the film necessarily tells us. The film actually shows us some really hot, passionate sex between those men and their wives, actually. Mm -hmm. But still that interpretation was made. So I think we need to start from that idea that it's very difficult to have an image that is undeniably bisexual. But I think we can learn something from that, that our experience of reading sexuality on film is very much informed by the way that we approach it and that these images don't always have inherent meaning in them. So in terms of how I approach that, given there are those problems and that you can't always say that something is definitive bisexual representation or not, I am interested in the instances in film where monosexuality kind of fails, where monosexuality kind of gets undermined in a moment. And I look to those moments to think, what's going on here where a bisexual possibility kind of enters the fold? That's my way of kind of avoiding what would be quite a boring project of saying, no, all these films are actually bi and they're not actually gay. But thinking instead about what, if we kind of attune ourselves to thinking about how bisexuality might emerge in certain ways, what might we discover there? I love that. And I loved reading that part in your work about how depending on the order of events, it can be interpreted through this monosexual lens. And I look back and I think to myself, well, I never connected with those coming out narratives. They didn't quite feel like me. Mm. And I think in my head at the time, Brokeback was that. That was, I interpreted it through that lens. 
and a recent example of when my brain was a little bit uh, more attuned to this stuff was Call Me By Your Name. Mm-hmm. I I connected with it so much, and I just I saw him as by the whole both of them as by but yeah. but even sort of regardless of the label, I just connected with those experiences in whatever order and just it felt so true and real whatever moment we were seeing but even that one was interpreted by many critics as a gay a gay coming out story a gay coming of age story no absolutely and i think that i had a very similar experience watching it that i was so kind of um overjoyed that in a film that was so that centered around this queer love story and that was being marketed around that that we got such kind of meaningful scenes of the relationships between elio and and the girlfriend that he has yeah and to have that so kind of front and center felt very special to me and it's interesting that there are some gay critics that saw that as homophobic almost that it kind of like undermined the gay love story in that i'm actually um writing a chapter for a collection on call me by your name next year so i'll be able to flesh these ideas out a little bit more so anyway moving on let's maybe start with like this idea of seeing bisexual possibilities that are outside of a character being with a man and a woman. And I would love for you to start with an example that you wrote about that I thought was so interesting. How do you pronounce it? Sallow? The movie Sallow. Sallow. Yeah. The movie Sallow and the yeah. uh, genderless asses in Sallow. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us what that's about? Yeah, so... Solo is a very interesting film. It kind of has a reputation for being like one of the most shocking films or disturbing films ever made. And it's by a director called uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini. It was made in 1975. It's his final film. Um, he was murdered shortly after, actually. Um, Oh God! And yeah, I mean that's a whole story in and of itself. Um, we, I think the most likely theory is that he got killed by a rent boy, but we don't know why. Um, well, you know these murder podcasts are much more popular than ours. Maybe, maybe we should do like a bisexual murder podcast. Okay. Oh my well, lord! I'll save that's... that for the next for the next iteration of this podcast. Uh, I'm actually really interested in bisexual serial killers and how they're talked about in the media, but that's something else. But <laughs> it it would be a hit. Okay. I'm sure new new podcast idea. Well, let's I'm talk sure tomorrow. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I take, I take, so the story of Salo is, um, it's adapted from a book by the Marquis de Sade in which a bunch of libertines abduct a group of teenagers and torture them in horrific ways. And, and it's all very sexual as well. And Pasolini takes um, this story, but applies it to uh, fascist Italy in the kind of final years or I think it's implied that it's like the final days of um, Italian fascism. And the film is interesting in as much as it's a really interesting exploration of fascism 
but also fascist erotics. And what it does is it kind of really uncomfortably puts you in the position of the fascist or the abuser. And then if we perhaps feel aroused at the things that we see or um, some of the scenes are really quite sexy, then there's this ethical dilemma that we have, basically. And so I use an example from the film in which a kind of competition is, is set up by the Libertines to ascertain which of their captives has the best arse. And the way that they do it is they position them all on the floor with their heads down and their arse up in the air. And one of the Libertines comments that this kind of layout is, is the best because if we don't know um, what gender they are, then we can be truly impartial. And I just found it such a kind of fascinating moment where a kind of very significant kind of social transgression of this horrible kind of torturous, abusive environment and these kind of depraved libertines games is aligned with a kind of bisexual erotics of wanting to have a kind of desirous setup where we are looking beyond gender. Yeah. It's a, it's I like the phrase you used fascist erotics which I have ne- I have never heard that <laughs> phrase before. I'm not sure how much I want to dig into that phrase but Duh. but yeah. you 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 also in your writing describe eroticism as like a violation of rules that that sort of is what makes something erotic sometimes mm. I guess. And uh, here, I want to read something you wrote that I thought was a very interesting uh-huh. line. You you wrote I suggest we can observe a cultural menage a trois between transgression, eroticism, and bisexuality. And your dissertation is about bisexual transgression in cinema, mm. and and that there's a connection between those kind of film transgressions and the, the societal transgression of bisexuality. Mm. Um, I don't know what my question is, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess how does this play out, or how? No, how, absolutely. What's going on? I think I began to notice that for these kind of bisexual moments to happen on film, they're often achieved through a kind of breaking of a rule or a surprise of our expectations Mm -hmm. that is in and of itself transgressive. And in that moment, we kind of get an illumination of the kind of structures that keep those rules in place. Mm. And through them we get to see how kind of fragile monosexuality is. And yeah, and there's something about transgression also that it's an alluring thing, that, that transgression is, is a space where rule-breaking is actually quite hot. It doesn't necessarily need to be morally acceptable for it to be thrilling. Um, mm. Often the opposite can be true, that the fact that mm-hmm. you shouldn't be being mm-hmm turned on by Sharon Stone being like a murderer who's like kissing men and women simultaneously in toilet cubicles kind of mm. makes it more hot. <laughs> yeah, it was either the first or second episode of this podcast. I said something like, to me, bisexuality is about saying fuck the rules, like all of the rules, mm. not just the like 
gender roles, but like a bigger than that of like monogamy and heteropatriarchy and and like looking back that's sort of something that's defined my life in a way like i to me my judaism feels like it's very much about questioning everything that's what i learned in temple was like asking questions and that's Mm. what torah study is is questioning everything and i remember when i was actually i don't remember but my mother tells the story that when i was like four or five years old she wouldn't let me watch TV or something. I was breaking some rule and I stood up on the couch and I said, I make the rules, not you. <laughs> and so it's like this push against the rules and the way the way things are. Yeah, and I think that there will be kind of rule breakings that we find kind of enjoyable and fun and politically radical then there'll be rule breakings that we find uncomfortable and that make us uneasy and i think that that can be often what makes by activists or by people critical of of these kind of bad bisexual characters because they see a bisexual murderer or rapist or whatever and think there's no way of me relating to this other than the literal horror that I'm having right now at seeing this and but for me the the important thing about film and literature and all these things is that it's not real life and that we can interpret those things metaphorically and we we don't need to engage with them as if they are saying this is what bisexual people really are. And I think that in those kind of more heinous representations that might make us more uncomfortable, we actually get a sense about what society fears about bisexuality, Mm -hmm. which I think is so incredibly powerful for us to um to look at and and in that sense I'm I'm really inspired by Shiri Eisner when she when she talks about not wanting to do myth busting or denying stereotypes right. she says like the things that are the most kind of troubling for monosexual society about bisexuality are the things that make it most subversive and and right. we we can lay claim to those in a kind of subversive fashion I agree, but and I know though that I have fallen into the trap too of wanting good by representation, and often, especially on Twitter, this gets reduced to the bisexual character should be a good person and should mm. not play into these stereotypes and should be a myth buster, and that ends up being so limiting in terms of what you can do creatively. And as you're saying, it implies that the way that a bisexual acts on screen is representative of the way bisexual people are. Mm. So how do you think we should be as queer people viewing these kind of narratives? I think it's a very kind of natural response. Growing up queer and for many of us seeing a kind of dearth of people with desires that look like ours on screen i think it's a very normal thing to want to go oh we need more of this and we need better of this but i think yeah when we get into the nitty-gritty of those things that you just mentioned of like what counts as good representation should we just assume that people believe everything about a certain sexuality because they see it on screen like treating cinema as if it was this kind of didactic propaganda tool where we learn what sexualities are really like 
So I think, I think the first thing to kind of come to terms with is that there's no way for any sexuality to be fully represented on screen. Mm-hmm. We're only ever getting iterations of, of sexuality that are never going to be, they can never be accurate, they can never be complete. So I think we need to look both at the content of films but also at the ways in which we watch films. Yeah. So in terms of the content, there's some really interesting discussion to be had around when and how bisexuality makes itself known. How does this relate to the context in which the film was made? And then in terms of how we watch film, I think we can take meaning pretty much where we want it. If something feels meaningful, to us as a bisexual, that can be enough. Like, mm-hmm. that can be enough that you feel a sense of sexual tension between these characters. It doesn't need to be shown, it doesn't need to be voiced, it doesn't need to be proven. Right. There can be something there that we enjoy. Right. And that's the, I mean, without sounding too pretentious, like that's the beauty of art, is that we can interpret these things and they can be meaningful for us in different different ways. Yeah, it's always like looking at movies and film that way from what it, how it speaks to you and what you see in it is almost a queer way of looking at film. Absolutely, and it's a, it's a queer tradition. I mean, this is why queers like tend to love like classical Hollywood because we love to read between the lines and <laughs> right. and find in like Marlena Dietrich and yeah oh god I'm forgetting yeah. people Marlon Brando or d- whatever to find these like moments where we're like oh yes that moment right. well and, and uh, working on Law and Order SVU I, I literally watched that kind of stuff happen in real time because there would be stuff in an episode and our our fans would notice these beats, these little looks or these little moments that they saw queerness in. And like most of the time it was not the intention. But, yeah. you know, even if it's not in, something is not intentionally queer, if people read that from it, it, it is. Right. I also think it's not that those clear quote good representations of a bi person shouldn't exist because you know in fact i when i heard rosa diaz on brooklyn 99 mm. say i'm bisexual i cried because i realized it was the first time i had heard that out loud and it spoke to me and had i seen a representation like that when i was younger maybe it would have broken me out of my binary way of thinking sooner mm. and and that kind of stuff has been sort of hidden however stuff like that is great but it can't be the only way that we portray bisexuality on screen and it can't be the only kind of representation that we're searching for and it's like basic instinct the bi angle of it adds this like tension and questioning that there's something by about that idea in addition to just she kisses a man and a woman absolutely but i also think in that film you get this idea of her being kind of um unable to pin down an inscrutable in ways that i think really mirror how bisexuals are conceptualized in wider society and for some reason it makes a lot of for that reason it makes a lot of sense that we get this kind of erotic thriller detective narrative going on because this whole our whole kind of 
regime of sexual knowledge that we have is always quite troubled by the presence of bisexuality. Right. It's like what you mentioned earlier and what you've written about, which is like the bi representation isn't just about the bi person on screen. It's about the reactions of those around that person. And Mm. in a way, when the bi character is a bad person or plays into stereotypes, it reveals the ways in which the society at large around us actually does react to bisexuality. And so in that way, it's almost good, accurate representation of the challenges we face. Right. I mean, if we're going to call anything accurate, it's that it kind of accurately gives us a sense of the social anxieties that exist in society. And that's, that's something that I've definitely... Um, been inspired by by Sherry Eisner's work um, is that we get a sense of what society is anxious about. It's anxious about there's oh I just read a really great um book called um it's called the bisexual mirror. It's written in French and it hasn't been translated. But the author Catherine Deschamps writes about the kind of assumption that all bisexuals are non monogamous mm-hmm. is rooted in people's fear about not being fulfilled by monogamy and i just really like that as a mm. as a kind of idea that it can be a kind of transference of society's right. um, fears about itself onto the figure of the bisexual Another thing we've been trying to talk more about on the podcast is gender fluidity and how that relates to sexual fluidity. And you wrote about how in film also, like, as gender becomes more fluid, so does sexuality. And so what are some of these narratives you've seen or how how do we look at those as, should we look at those as bisexual? Are they just kind of queer? Like, No, I think that when we have narratives of gender transition, there is the potential is opened to think beyond binary ways of thinking about gender. And often in those processes, in narratives where that person has relationships with people, the idea that one is either gay or straight is also opened up. So I think that there's there's something that's quite special and meaningful about trans narratives as opening up the possibilities of sexuality as they open up different possibilities in gender, for sure. And I think that bi and trans kind of activism has, has historically kind of gone hand in hand. But I think in terms of the way that we approach media critically, I think that many more connections can kind of be forged there. Yeah, it's also interesting, another thing you wrote about that's that's kind of similar, although it doesn't even have to take place within a narrative, which is this idea of like movie stars that we want to be with them and we also want to be them. And, and yes. or in a movie like, you know, we want to take their place and be fucking who they're fucking. But we also kind of there's a magnetism to that person itself. And there's something almost inherently by about that. Yeah, and this is the really ironic thing about film, that given all the discussion we've had about how difficult it is to kind of represent bisexuality definitively and whatnot, there's this really bisexual process that goes on in spectatorship. And bisexuality was actually a really 
key term for feminist film theory in the in the 70s and 80s when they were thinking through this ability of spectators to both desire anyone that they see on screen and to identify with anyone that they see on screen and the desire aspect they characterized as bisexual and the identification aspect of it they characterized it as transsexual or transvestism in the language of the time and it's interesting how those both get kind of taken up in ways that don't really relate to them as identities but more as metaphors but to describe that process of spectatorship so there's definitely an argument to be made that there's something very bi and very trans about about watching a film anyway that I can be a cis guy and watch like a Cheryl Dungy film or a Barbara Hammer film and I and kind of inhabit that position of the lesbian woman for that 90 minutes there's something yeah. really interesting going on there around gender and sexuality that we can inhabit these different spaces that we can play around with our desires in a safe kind of way right yeah i uh, so i love that yeah. idea that there's always been something by about watching film well and i also now want to relate this to porn because i see a parallel mm. there too which and you've written about porn and porn was basically one of the things that awakened me to my bisexuality and i remember you know, at first I would watch like a man and a woman doing something and I'm imagining that I'm the guy. I'm identifying with him, wanting to be him in that situation. But over time, at some point, I think I sort of realized there's something about this whole thing that's kind of hot to me. And it's not just I'm blocking out his body parts and putting myself in his brain and focusing on the woman. Like, the whole thing is erotic or arousing. And like, there's this idea that by porn, like by film, you have to see the person be with a man and a woman. Yeah. There's this idea that by porn, and if you search for by porn even today, what you get is a threesome, usually two men and a woman. Yeah. And yet, kind of based on what you're saying and, and my experience is like, if you're watching a man and a woman on screen in porn, you as the viewer are whatever gender you are, isn't it bisexual by default almost? It's a very bisexual experience. It's a very bisexual experience watching porn. And I think that, yeah, all those things around spectatorship and desire and identification are so heightened when it comes to porn film because we literally get to desire and identify to get off to it. Yeah, and it's... It's a really interesting thing, like early, early kind of porn studies work. There's some writing where people are a bit flummoxed by the idea that men, that straight men will look at other men's bodies <laughs> um, right. and like trying to grapple with this. Right. And, right. and that there is something kind of inherently bi about it. And that isn't to kind of make a claim for everyone who watches porn ever being really right. bi, but it does contain these kind of potentials within it. Right. And as you were saying, there's there's potential for us to play out things in our desires to kind of identify with being a woman in, in a straight porn scene. We've kind of touched on this, but a lot of your work is kind of about how we should be viewing films and other 
representations of bisexuality and other art forms. But, you know, like I am a content creator. I'm working on a pilot about male bisexuality. Like, what advice would you have for someone like me or anyone out there creating films or other art about this stuff? Like, is there a direction you would like to see things go? Oh, that's such an interesting one. I think the first thing that I would say, which is something that you probably already know, that whatever you intend something to be doesn't mean that people are going to take it that way. And that's going to be something that you have to live with as a, as a content creator, that mm-hmm. even if your intention is to kind of do something or make some kind of intervention, it might not be seen like that. Mm-hmm. I'd, what, what would I say? I would say that in my, in my most recent chapter, I looked at a film called Savage Nights by a French director called Cyril Collard, who was a bisexual man who made a film that was semi-autobiographical about his life. He was HIV positive and he lived a very kind of promiscuous lifestyle and he represented that in his film with kind of a very raw honesty that made the made the film particularly popular in France. I think if that film were to be released today, I can imagine that people would say, oh, it's confirming stereotypes about bi people, it's presenting us as risky and promiscuous and disease spreaders and, and whatnot. But I think what he did was he chose to kind of inhabit those things and his complex relationship to them and stay with that complexity. So I think part of my advice would be not to be afraid of the bi stereotypes that you might adhere to and that you might want to explore and that there's something to be gained in just kind of sitting with them for a bit and staying with them and exploring that Mm -hmm. and that that's kind of where interesting learning happens, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've found it's almost impossible to get away from them entirely anyway, even if I try, because my experience has been at least somewhat defined by those stereotypes or the reactions to them. So yeah, to, to yeah. get an authentic experience, you, you know, you, it can't be this perfect world. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that authenticity will be authentic to you. And that will right. that will be the important thing as a content creator. And you'll get people saying, this isn't my experience of bisexuality and I'm not like right. this and I don't go to sex parties or whatever. But that's on them. Right. <laughs> So I want to talk about one last thing um, that isn't exactly the focus of your research, but you did publish an article and kind of jumped into the fray on this issue. So this was big, big news a couple of months ago. Scientists once again proved the existence of bisexual men. I believe it was a meta-analysis, a study of other studies that looked at physiological responses to erotic stimuli, to porn, of men and women. And they thankfully determined that bi men are real. I guess like the worst case scenario would be the opposite. But at the same time, the existence of this study and the way that they looked at this uh, is not only, in your opinion and my opinion, 
pointless, but also possibly harmful. Yeah, so the thing about these, I think we need to look first at the kind of test um, that this is. So it was developed by a Czechoslovakian sexologist called Kurt Freund, who developed this test which is basically a like gauge that you put around someone's dick and then show them erotic material and you see how aroused they get and he used that as a way of determining sexual arousal and he used that to i believe it was like testing whether guys that had said that they were gay so they didn't have to serve in the army because you weren't allowed to be gay in the army, they were tested to see whether they were actually gay. That was one of the first uses of it. Since then, it's been used a lot um, to try and determine how cured paedophiles are. But the most worrying version of this for me was that it was used in the Czech Republic in asylum cases where people were seeking asylum on the basis of their sexuality this test was used. So it has this kind of messy history that is rendered even more kind of troublesome by the test itself. I think that to get an erection in a kind of essentially a lab setting isn't what like everyone can do. Certain kinds of porn arouse people, certain kinds of porn don't arouse people. Mm -hmm. And then there's the question of the erection being this kind of gauge for for arousal when, I mean, I write this elsewhere, that anyone who's like bottomed or done BDSM in their life knows how fucking turned on you can be while having a flattered dick. Mm -hmm. So it's this very kind of cold scientific idea of what it means to have a sexuality it's this kind of measurable thing and if the penis grows by x millimeters then that means that sufficient arousal has has taken place so there are all kinds all kinds of problems with this But the way that it had been used around male bisexuality had predominantly been to prove that it didn't exist. One of the guys that was involved in this recent study, a guy called J. Michael Bailey, known most famously for being quite a transphobic person who wrote a book about trans women that is just awful. But anyway, he did some of these earlier tests, which he said confirmed that physiologically speaking, he can't find evidence for the existence of male bisexuality. Now, he did tests later, which suddenly did. And <laughs> it's not some like scientific breakthrough. It just goes to show that it's a, it's a really shitty way yeah. to conduct research. And it is based in this kind of belief that the, that the body is this kind of neutral site where we can take measurements like mm. as if it were a kind of soil sample or something to like see the yeah. percentage of things. It's such a rigid and unimaginative way to conceive of, of sexuality. So right. I think that even when we have these reports that say male bisexuality does exist, definitely. We found these guys that get hard when they're shown naked women and naked men. That's not an opportunity to say to say hooray, because we really right. need to dispute that 
mode of understanding what sexuality is. It's something that queer studies has, has fought against for the past 30 years. And queer studies really went to town on medicine <laughs> and, the, and the medical sciences and the way that they essentially sought to prove things that were just confirming their own prejudices. Ultimately, it has no claim to legitimacy. I feel quite passionately yeah. about this. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. And it's like, you know, I think I did think that way when I was identifying as straight. It's like, <laughs> if, if I'm hard, then, then, then I like this. And if I'm not, then not. And, yeah. and that caused a lot of, first of all, it caused me a lot of concern at certain points because with some women I got hard and with some women I didn't. And that made me question my sexuality every time instead of Mm. what I now realize, which is like, there are so many things around a sexual experience that determine what happens at each moment and how aroused you are. And, and it's not just about the gender of the person. We can't reduce it all down to that. And like there have been times I'm at a sex party and I'm very turned on and there's a bunch of people around of different genders, but I'm not hard until I somebody until I start playing with somebody like it's just very reductive. Absolutely. But the thing is, you get a sense that the people doing these kind of experiments have no knowledge of that. They really they are set in that kind of patriarchal straight framework. Yeah. And I can definitely relate to that. The idea that sex is penetration and it's about a hard dick. Mm -hmm. And and actually one of the great things about queerness is we get to experience so much beyond that. And and part of why I like having relationships with queer women actually is because I think queer women don't in general in comparison to straight women that I've been with don't come to sex with those kind of expectations either that there is the idea that there's no such thing as foreplay it's just all of it is sex and and we're having a good time exactly no we've talked here about how for me sex with women got better after coming out as bi and and queer and exploring my queerness because of exactly what you're talking about it didn't just open up the doors of gender of my partner it opened doors of so many things of sex not being this rigid thing but actually there's so many different types of activities that are that are related and part of a sexual experience absolutely absolutely and i think that yeah studies like this will never understand that and it's actually beyond their understanding because they want things that you can put in a data set and do stuff to yeah. and that's why we why we need the humanities to be discussing this stuff really that we sometimes yeah. need to go i love i love the sciences and they do some excellent stuff but actually this stuff you're not you're not needed here you yeah. yeah we don't need you here All right, great. That's a perfect place to stop. Thank you so much for being here on Two Bye Guys, Jacob. It was nice to finally meet you, and and I look forward to the dissertation being published and whatever else you continue tweeting about. (laughs) Thank you very much. Fingers crossed they'll get a book out of me one day. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Rob. 
Two By Guys is created and hosted by Alex Boyd and me, Rob Cohen. Our logo art was designed by Caitlin Weinman, and our music was composed and created by Ross Mincer. Season 2 is executive produced and edited by me, Rob Cohen, and produced by Alex Boyd and Moxie Pung, with support from IFP. Thanks for listening to Two By Guys. <laughs>